and Tyler have done an amazing job with community engagement this year. So thank you for all the work you've done for Ailey. Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, in the, the back half of the chapter. So we opened that up this last week. We'll be finishing 2 this week. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up and follow along, uh, or follow along on your device, or it'll also be up here on the screen. And if you are physically able to stand, would you mind standing to honor the reading of God's Word? Okay, so Daniel 2, beginning in verse 25, and then we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory and into, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We sing a new song to you, O Lord. Sing a song to you, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Lord, would we see you like that this morning? Help us to see your greatness, your power. And change our hearts to trust you as the one true living God. Would you meet us in this place this morning? Would, by the power of your spirit, would you transform us? And would Jesus be lifted high? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. June 14th, 1998. My family was huddled around a television in our living room. It was game six of the NBA Finals. The Chicago Bulls led the series with the Utah Jazz 3-2. to two. They had lost the previous game at home, which forced them to return to Utah to play game six. It's the final minutes of the game. John Stockton of the Jazz buried a three, which 
basically set them up to, for, for another loss in a continuation of the, the series to game seven. Or so it seemed, and something remarkable happened. Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. He scored in four seconds, bringing the game to within one with 35 seconds left, and then back on the other end of the court. Uh, Stockton, I think, passed down to Malone on the block, and Jordan snuck up behind him, stole the ball, and the teams reset on the other end of the court with 15 seconds left. And an exhausted Michael Jordan, who had barely rested the whole game, didn't take a timeout, set up at the three, and isolated his defender, Russell, started to cut over across the court and then did a quick crossover and drained a 20-footer to put the Bulls up by one with five seconds left. And if you were there, and I realize some of you maybe weren't alive yet, <laughs> so this is dating me, right? But Last Dance, right? You guys have seen Netflix, the, the Netflix show. Uh, if you watch that, you know how iconic that moment was. This was the game-winning shot that secured their sixth championship, the final championship of, of Jordan's career. And it was the greatest player to ever play the game taking one of the biggest shots of his career with all the pressure hanging on him. And he nailed it. And it was the final, his final shot as a Chicago Bull. We won't talk about when he came back as a wizard out of retirement for two years. We'll just ignore those years. It was his final shot as a Bull, right? And I knew, man, when I was watching that, I just absolutely lost my mind when he made that shot, right? And I knew that I was watching history in the making. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just know that this is history? But I also knew that as I was watching that, it wasn't just history that I was watching. I was watching greatness. The greatest player to ever play the game. And greatness is the central theme of today's passage. In the series in the book of Daniel, we are exploring how seeing God more clearly and more fully leads us to a deeper trust in him and a cultivation of a, a resilient faith in a challenging and often confusing world. And so each week as we're working through this series, we're reflecting on a different attribute or characteristic or work of God in the world and how God equips us to live in this world in light of that. So in the first two weeks, we looked at the faithfulness of God and the wisdom of God. And now this morning, we see the greatness of God, the greatness of God. And that's a big, it's really more of a category than a specific attribute. It could be a category that kind of encompasses a variety of attributes, but we're just going to look at one aspect of that partially today, and we'll turn to more of those attributes in the coming weeks. But what we see in this passage is two parts. Uh, consider God's greatness in two parts. A quality of God's greatness, and then the significance of God's greatness for us today. 
So a quality of God's greatness. You know, we, we begin where we left off last week in Daniel 2. To recap, Daniel and his friends have been carried off to live in exile in Babylon. They've been trained as wise men to the king. In the beginning of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a, a disconcerting dream. And so he brought in his experts to interpret the dream, but he required not only that they tell him the interpretation, but they, they tell him the dream itself. And the experts told him it was absolutely impossible, at which point he ordered their execution as well as all the, the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So Daniel and his friends, who are part of that class, were fetched to be carried away to be executed, at which point Daniel requested an opportunity to provide an interpretation. And so he and his friends go before the Lord in prayer, seeking God's mercy, and the Lord answered. The Lord revealed the dream and the meaning of the dream in a vision at night, and Daniel just exploded in praise to God. And so then Daniel was brought before the king and asked if he could provide the interpretation, and that's where we pick up in the story this morning. And in this dream, so we're told by Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar saw a massive statue. But there's something interesting about this statue. Its components were made up of different metals. So the head was made of gold, the arms and the chest were made of silver, the torso and the thighs were made of bronze, the legs were made of iron, and then the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. And then in the dream, a hand cuts out a stone and throws it at the feet of the statue which makes the feet crumble and then makes the entire statue collapse and shatter. And then that rock begins to grow, and it grows into a massive mountain, a great mountain, we are told. That's the end of the dream. And Daniel gives a pretty straightforward explanation of it. He said that the different components of the statue represent different kingdoms, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar at the top as the head of gold. After him were to come three subsequent kingdoms, represented by silver and then bronze and then iron, and each subsequent kingdom would be weaker than the previous one with the exception of iron, which it says smashes. But even the kingdom of iron would have weaknesses. It would have vulnerabilities, and that's why they're the feet are, are made of iron mixed with baked clay, which would have made it susceptible to breaking. Then a final kingdom would come, one that is established by God. And what we see from Daniel's explanation is that there are two central reasons that God has revealed this to Nebuchadnezzar, to Daniel, and preserved it for us today. And the first is to reveal the limitations of man-made greatness. You know, if we were to list out the who's who of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians in general, and Nebuchadnezzar in particular, would be on that list, maybe up towards the top, along with the Romans and the Persians and the Greeks. Nebuchadnezzar had vast wealth. 
It accumulated vast wealth. He was successful militarily, and he was a great builder. He built uh, fortifications, especially in the capital city, infrastructure, temples, a palace, and even supposedly constructed one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He ruled as the king of the Mediterranean for over 40 years. He was the longest ruling <clears throat> Babylonian monarch. And as such, he was regarded as the greatest king that Babylon ever had. <clears throat> Yet for all his wealth, for all his influence, for all his importance, he was still ultimately limited. He had <clears throat> limited power. After commanding the wise men to disclose this dream to him, you remember what his counselors and experts said to him. He said, they said, no, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing. No great king has ever asked such a thing. So the dream itself is a very confrontation to the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a confrontation and an, an exposure of the limitation of his power. He cannot interpret it. He can't make sense of it. And he cannot make his subjects make sense of it either. And then, when the explanation is ultimately provided by Daniel, you remember he hears from Daniel twice, the hand of God, it is the hand of God which has given him all his authority to rule. So even that, his very position and the abilities that come with that are not the result of his own strength. He's only a steward of what has been given to him. No matter how much he strains, no matter how much he resists and fights, he is limited by his human abilities. He has limited power. He has limited accomplishments. Even though he lived a long and successful life, he was considered great in his dynasty. His reach was limited to the boundaries of his empire. And that was true for the kingdoms that came after him as well. Even though they had different strengths and weaknesses, none of them had true worldwide success. They all had their limits. And the limits of their accomplishments are even depicted in the, the structure of the statue. Isn't it interesting? The statue is not one king or one kingdom. It's a composite of different kingdoms. And this amalgamation of different disparate kingdoms says something about their achievements relative to what is coming. And we're going to go into that in more detail in the future, in, in Daniel 7, where we take a deep dive into the theme of kingdom. But for now, we see simply that they are limited in their accomplishments. So he's limited in his power, he's limited in his accomplishments, and he's limited in his legacy. Each of the earthly kingdoms has a limited legacy. Not one of them lasted. Each one fell to the next one after the other. And even the most powerful of them all, the fourth, eventually crumbled. You may have noticed that the kingdoms are listed in reverse order in verse 35 when they, when they come crumbling down. 
He says the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold from bottom to top all together were broken in pieces. The great statue of the greatness of mankind collapses from the bottom and every part is destroyed in turn, which means even the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar crumbles. And the remnants of the kingdom are blown away like chaff, we're told. The debris is thrown off from the, the seeds of grain after being processed on the threshing floor. They're blown away by the wind, forgotten. As one commentator said, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will not last. Kings and kingdoms, presidents and dictators, democracies and tyrannies and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. This is the inevitable end of the greatness of mankind. But there's a second purpose for this revelation that we get from God. It is to reveal the unlimited greatness of God. He has unlimited power. It is his voice that rouses Nebuchadnezzar from his slumber in more ways than one and brings him anxious, anxiously searching for answers. It's his voice, again, that comes to Daniel in the vision at night, providing the answer to the mystery that befuddled the greatest king Babylon had ever seen. It is his will that grants to Nebuchadnezzar the responsibilities that he has, and it is at his discretion that he gives and takes that away, as we'll see soon. It is his hand that carves a stone from the side of a mountain. No human hand does this. It's the hand of God. And it is his might that casts the stone that makes the statue of man-made greatness shatter. God is unlimited in his power. He has an unlimited accomplishment, if you will. You know, man-made kingdoms, even those that by all accounts are the most successful, the most established, the most reputable, only go so far. They have borders, they have restrictions. But God's kingdom is expansive. Not only does the rock undermine and destroy the statue, it then grows greater and greater in size, becoming a great mountain. It keeps growing. It keeps expanding. It surpasses every border. It has no restrictions. And the greatness of this mountain continues growing until it fills the entire earth. The reign and the work of God is in no way constrained. There's nothing that he cannot do. And one day, his kingdom will expand and fill all the earth. He's unlimited in his power. He's unlimited in his accomplishments. And he is unlimited in his legacy, so to speak. The kingdoms of this world all come to an end. In one way or another, at some point, all the effort and the labor and the sacrifice that has been poured into building a kingdom is eventually overcome by that of another. 
Every king is passed by another king. Every administration is passed by another administration. But not God's kingdom. His kingdom will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will endure forever. Forever. This is the fate of the kingdom that is established by the hand of God. No matter the opposition, no matter the cultural headwinds, no matter the pressures or the resistance that we experience, his kingdom will last for eternity. And nothing will defeat it. It will never be conquered, but it will conquer all. The greatness of God is unlimited. Pastor uh, John Piper, the former Minneapolis pastor, uh, gave this picture of the power of God years ago. He said, suppose that you were exploring an unknown glacier in the north of Greenland in the dead of winter, and just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles and miles of jagged ice and snow-covered mountains, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear arises that it might blow you and your party right over the cliff. But in the midst of it, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure, but the awesome might of the storm rages on, and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it, as it surges out across the distant glaciers. At first, there was this fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished, only the life-threatening part. There remains this trembling of awe, of wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. God's power is behind the unendurable cold of Arctic storms. Yet he cups his hand around us and says, take refuge in my love and let the terrors of my power become the awesome fireworks of your happy night sky. Such is our response to an encounter with the greatness of God. When we see his power and his work in this world, we're simultaneously moved to awe and to a fearful reverence. Awe at his beauty, awe at his majesty, the immensity of his power, and a deep fearful reverence for his matchlessness, a deep sense of our unworthiness in his presence and yet his goodness. The psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Do you have that kind of picture of God? Do you stand in awe of God and his greatness? Do you behold his power his might. That is what we're called to. So we see the quality 
of God's greatness, that he is unlimited, that he is matchless in every way. What is the significance of his greatness for us today? Daniel identified the reason for this vision, why this explanation was given. He said, in order that you might know the thoughts of your mind, and then later he says, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So God is giving this vision and its explanation in order to bring a correct understanding of what was and what was to come, of reality and of ultimate reality. And we look at the effect that it have on, had on Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He's overjoyed finally to have this answer. And he orders these provisions to be made for Daniel to make an offering to God. And now, now the Lord still had a lot of work to do on Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, don't be confused about that. We're going to get to that in the coming chapters. But we see this very first step of him seeing God and the effect of this revelation of seeing God is relief. It's relief. And the effect of that, we can have that same effect today. Seeing God can bring us relief as well. When we take to heart what is true, what is real, what we can depend on, we can experience the relief of our anxieties falling off. There's a freedom that comes in truly seeing the greatness of God. And I want to think about that freedom in a couple of ways. It's the significance for us. We, we receive the freedom to depend on the power of God, not on our own strength. You know, when we are confronted with a seemingly impossible situation, the the first instinct for Daniel and his friends was what? It was to go to God in prayer, to ask him to work in power, to look to him as the God of all wisdom and might, the God who owns wisdom and might. Do we see God as that powerful, as that available, and is that dependable? I know in my own life, when anxiety or worry or fear creeps in and begins to, to take hold of my mind and my heart, it's typically because I've lost sight of those realities, maybe one or all of them. Either I've minimized the power of God to work, thinking that he's able to do far less than he can, or I've thought that he's inaccessible to me, that my prayers just aren't going anywhere, or I've doubted that he really cares. And when I start to feel these symptoms of of self-dependence rather than dependence on him, I'm benefited greatly by a friend gently and lovingly asking me, have you taken that to God? Have you taken your fears, your worries, your concerns to God. I need to hear that because the tendency in my life is to grip control and depend on my own strength. And I neglect the resources available to me and the power and the work of a caring God. Do you find yourself overwhelmed by worry, by anxiety, by fear? Do you feel the persistent need to be in control? Do you see yourself defaulting to resolve issues in your own understanding, with your own wisdom, 
or in your own strength? Are there ways that you are depending upon yourself instead of depending upon God? If so, remember today that God is unlimited in his greatness, in his power, in his might, that he is almighty. He is more powerful than anything else in this universe. And what we spend a lifetime trying to achieve, he can accomplish in a second with one word, with the snap of a finger. And he cares. He cares about you and he invites you to come to him with anything that weighs on your heart. Andrew Murray, the 19th century South African minister, said, said it like this. He said, beware in your prayer above everything of limiting God, not only by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. How often do we do this? I won't confess your sins. I'll just confess mine. Often. Often. But we have an unlimited God, and we do not need to depend on our own abilities. We can depend on his power. Second freedom that we get is the freedom of knowing with certainty that every man-made kingdom will crumble, but the kingdom of God will endure. Every example of man-made kingdoms and human greatness that we can think of, every one of them will eventually be blown away like chaff. Every crown and scepter, every sword and shield, every institution, every monument, every palace, every degree, every dollar, every trophy. They'll be blown away in the wind. Now, without God, that sounds pretty depressing. But with a great God, it's freeing. It's freedom. Because when we know that only the kingdom of God will endure, it reorients our perspective on every aspect of life. It gives us a new framework for our priorities. We can see more clearly the things that are important and the things that are not. We can ask in 10,000 years from now, well, this thing that I'm so focused on, that I'm so worried about, that I'm so tied up in knots about, will this matter? Or will this be carried away in the wind? Not that we should be resigned to some kind of fatalistic, apathetic attitude. Not in the least. You know, Daniel and his friends went on to serve faithfully in the court of Nebuchadnezzar for decades. And it was his faithful work that brings us this word. The point is, rather, that the reality of the kingdom of God should make us discerning. We should ask, does this activity, this use of time, make a difference in someone's life? Does it help me or someone else to grow? Does it edify? Or how can I operate within this responsibility that the Lord has entrusted to me in a way that makes a difference eternally? And then we set our priorities accordingly. It gives us a new, new framework for priorities, new framework for security, new framework for responsibility and success, new framework for morality and ethics and character. And it gives us a new framework for hardship. That no matter what suffering you're facing now, 
that you can know with confidence that there's coming a day when it, too, will be carried away in the wind. And you'll be in the presence of God. And all that heartache will be gone. Daniel concluded, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. And so is your hope. You know, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar knew only that there was a rock coming. But on this side of history, we know who that rock is. During Jesus' ministry, around 600 years later, he told a parable to some of the crowds that were around him. It was a parable of a vineyard owner who left the vineyard and trusted to some tenants. And he went away, and then at harvest time, he sent his servants to go and collect the fruit of the harvest. And he says that the tenants beat the servants, ran them off. He did that to one, two, three servants. Eventually, the owner of the vineyard said, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And the tenants said, this is our opportunity. If we seize the son and kill him, he won't, we'll get the inheritance. So they killed the son. And the crowds reacted, God forbid. And Jesus said, he quoted Psalm 118. He said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus was the rock. Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And every person that rejects him ultimately will be rejected by him. But everyone that falls upon him will be broken, but then made whole. Jesus was the son, is the son, who was crushed that we could be made whole, that we could see the greatness of God, that we could be saved. So we, may we come to him this morning and put our trust in the unlimited greatness of our God. Amen.